So I'd like to start this episode with just a little bit of an intro from an article in Applied Psychology and International Review. And this quote goes as follows. Diversity in work team composition presents a paradox. On the one hand, diversity of team members' perspectives promises higher quality decisions, greater creativity, and more innovation. On the other, it also leads to a greater probability of tensions and conflicts. Not surprisingly, research linking diversity to team performance offers contradictory results. How can we explain this paradox? End quote. Stay tuned, and we'll discuss. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Yeah, so today we're talking about diversity, conflict, and team performance. And I love that quote because you're like, you know, that's the problem. Get diversity. You'll make better decisions. You don't have diversity. Right. You're a bunch of numbskulls. Get diversity. But it, then, which is true. Where's the, <laughs> where's the other half of that was like, well, now we have diversity, but we're fighting all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to unpack this, this interesting phenomenon. And we're going to talk about this, these relationships that occur between or among diversity, conflict, team performance. We're going to talk about how do we even think about and manage conflict within diverse teams. And of course, we'll also talk about some implications for people, for leaders, and for organizations. So, you know, let's start off with this idea of, you know, what are the relationships among diversity, conflict, and team performance? And I think the first thing we got to do here is kind of talk about diversity itself, right? Yeah. So, you know, lots of people in the current environment, like diversity is normally categorized in ideas about race and gender, you know, would be mm -hmm. two of the major ones right now. But you could have diversity of right hand and left hand people. <laughs> you could. Right. You, could. you know, it's like, well, we have we have so many lefties, we're going to have to arrange the seating so our pin arms aren't bumping each other at the conference right. table, right? Yeah. We, I mean, on this podcast, we have diversity in terms of, you know, the amount of uh, hair on, on our heads. Easy. I'm getting mm. hurt feelings over here. <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners, Chris is uh, more bald than I am. Uh, so let's talk about some different types of diversity. And, and one type is surface level. So surface level diversity has to do with those characteristics that we can easily observe, that we can easily ascertain when we're looking at other people. You know, those things that make us different or unique uh, within a group. So obviously things like race and things like gender and other, you know, height, <laughs> other types of physical characteristics certainly come to mind. Uh, that's what we talk about when we talk about surface level diversity. Also, there's I, some, some other ones here that I think are good is how somebody dresses. Sure. Right? Like you can signal a lot about somebody's, you know, class level, maybe mm. financial class level, um, other ways in the way that people carry themselves, right? right? Can denote certain things. I know in some of like the acting world, they'll talk about playing with power structures and the way that people talk, the way that mm. people that conduct themselves, you know, that can be a surface level of diversity, of um, socioeconomic, you know, status, so to speak. Sure. 
And then there's another level of diversity, which is, I think, just as, if not even more, more important when it comes to teams and organizations. And that's what we call deep level diversity. And certainly some of the aspects of deep level diversity can be related to surface level diversity. But this has to do with things like your background, your ways of thinking, your perspective, your leadership styles, you know, your personality, all of these other things that make us unique. And uh, those are important too. So when we're talking about diversity, it's not just the surface level. It's also the deep level diversity that can occur um, and that you can have within a group. You can also kind of have an objective perspective versus subject, right? So I may feel, I may more identify with one group or another. Um, and, and that can be also part of this whole equation. Yeah. So some of these deep level diversity items like, notice we haven't talked about race or gender yet at all. Like, let me give you an example of a deep-level diversity thing that happened. So I practiced my keister hop to go to Nashville and play guitar, mm -hmm. right, and, and tour. And so that was learning the best I could from, you know, the internet was still just kind of becoming a thing where you might be able to learn, watching as many other guitarists live as possible, going through all the instructional books if you've been if you look behind at the bookshelf behind me it's just loaded with i have pretty much every guitar book that's worth owning on those shelves right going through and then i showed up in nashville and i start playing with some of the best guitarists in the world and talking to them and i was like man i got a lot like i don't even know what i don't know about guitar despite mm. doing all this work despite getting some good gigs in nashville and I, it, it was very disconcerting for me as an individual to be like, man, I've worked, worked so hard and these guys can murder me on guitar level ability. Right. And, and it was just hard that that difference of background. Sometimes when we go into an organization to describe something, maybe the organization struggling with a problem of some sort, we have such deep level knowledge about that issue. It's sometimes you're just like, gee, I don't even know where to start in describing. <laughs> and, and it's not bad, right? We're there to help. But sometimes that can be a challenge because we notice this deep level of background that we have. They've been functioning in a certain way the whole time. And we just have this perspective having been, you know, behind the scenes in tons of different orgs. Yeah, yeah. You know, another interesting way in which we can look at diversity, another lens, so to speak, through which we can view it, is what we call social identity. And by the way, we are uh, drawing heavily from an article, is actually the article that I quoted in the intro, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, uh, which talks about diversity in a few different helpful ways. But they talk about this idea of social identity, and social identity and social identity theory is uh, you know, a fairly well-established um, set of of thought within social psychology, and we use it some in organizational psych psychology as well. But it has to do with group membership, and you know when you think about it, part not all, but part of how we view ourselves, right? Your kind of preferred sense of self um, has to do with some of the different groups in which you are a member. Uh, you know, and these may be related to certain characteristics of yourself. 
So I consider myself to be part of the group of men. I consider myself to be a part of a group of, you know, the, the, the people of kind of middle age, I guess. I don't know what you call what, where we are right now. Um, you know, uh, military, like that's another, if you imagine kind of a bunch of like intersecting circles, you know, a Venn diagram with, with a handful of circles and, and all those kind of intersect. And, you know, I'm part of these different kind of different groups and, and how I view the world depends in part upon how I see myself vis-a-vis these different group memberships. So that's part of how we can think about ourselves. And it also kind of determines to some degree what types of environments make us feel safe and which types of environments make us feel perhaps threatened or uncomfortable, right? So some people are very comfortable in certain situations and uncomfortable in others. And part of that has to do with their social identity. Yeah, the social identity piece is so important because everybody pretty much has this. And Mm -hmm. all of marketing that exists out in the world, you know, hey, are you a rich lawyer with a disgusting amount of disposable income? Come pretend to be a biker gang member at the Harley dealer, right? They're playing (laughs) with these. (laughs) They're playing with these identities because let's be honest, the doctors and lawyers are about the only people that can afford those things anymore, (laughs) but they're playing with identity. You go anytime my wife takes me shopping with her, which I try to avoid like the play, but anytime every piece like, are you going to be boho chick? Or are you going to be, and these different brands have different kind of brand voices and characters, and they play with this identity piece, right? Mm-hmm. And the key point is, you know, you walk into a store that's just great. I love going, well, I, is Brooks Brothers going to make it past bankruptcy? The uh, old we'll Brooks Brothers. I love the old Brooks Brothers because I knew whatever suit I would buy there, I could wear into any business environment and be okay. Right. And and why do you want to be okay? Because, right, we go into all these different businesses. They all have different cultures. They all have different perspectives. And we're, they look at us and they're like, well, well, who are you? Because we're playing this identity game. And are these people safe? I, am I safe to come into this organization? Yeah. Well, and you can think yeah. about it from kind of an evolutionary perspective, perhaps, of, you know, this, this perhaps served a function at some point of, you know, is this a trusted entity or not, right? Are, are these people like me in important ways or not? Now, of course, that becomes more problematic when we have complex society. Uh, and what's interesting about this this um, research that I uh, mentioned earlier that, of course, we put a link to in the show notes is that they use social identity as a way to explain how conflict can emerge within diverse teams, right? So we do know from research that you know, when you have a heterogeneous team where people maybe come from all kinds of different backgrounds, maybe you also have a high level of surface level diversity as well, uh, that they tend to have some level of more conflict than the, you know, homogenous teams. You know, if, if we really wanted to have a, a conflict free uh, team, I just, you know, somehow get a bunch of clones of myself. We, it'd be great. We'd all agree with each other all the time. But, um, you know, if we look at at the social identity pieces here within a group, uh, there are certain things that might happen that enhance the salience of our social identity, right? So, you know, it, it could be just certain things about the the awareness of your social identity or um, other people's reactions to you or expectations of you. Um, maybe there's some competition that starts occurring. Uh, those types of things can really make our uh, social identity more or less apparent to us. 
Yeah, this idea of social identity importance or salience, like, hey, this is super important to me, is, you know, some places it's not super important. You know, if you're standing in line to get on a roller coaster at Six Flags, do you really... Does your identity matter a lot at that moment? No, because there's a social norm around everybody looks straight ahead. You <laughs> get on when it's your turn and you get off. So that's kind of a structure that makes social identity less important. Pretty much all theme parks are like it because they want to take money from, hey, if you got money, they want it type thing, right? <laughs> but there's difference like in a work environment, our social identity can be salient because there can be importance of goals. Right. And in a global context, this matters more differently. So think about meeting norms and who talks and how long, you know. So if there's a more hierarchical culture, maybe in some globalized society, well, maybe it's a, a guy sits at the end. We kind of do this in a lot of army meetings, Ben. I don't know how it is in the Navy. The, the head dude in charge or lady in charge sits at the end of that table and everybody reports. She asks questions as she sees fit. And that's the norm for that meeting. But in more collaborative societies or business cultures, man, that would that would be the worst meeting that you could ever have, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess you bring up the military, and I think there's, that's a good example of kind of one piece of social identity salience that's very high in the military, which has to do with power structures and rank. So we actually wear things on our clothes. It's kind of funny when you think about it, right? That, that denote where we sit in the hierarchy. And so in that type of environment... Rank is very salient, and it has to, and it it, it uh, certainly influences how you speak to each other, um, how you interact, and so forth. One thing that can occur within diverse teams is something that we call a fault line, and a fault line occurs when you have certain demographic characteristics. That's usually how we talk about this. That start to kind of uh, make subgroups within the group. So let's imagine you have a group, and this is a really simple example, right? You have a group, and you know half of half of the group happens to be female, half the group happens to be male. You know there is the potential for there to be a fault line that occurs across those gender boundaries, and this is going to certainly occur in a whole bunch of other ways. And I'm being a little bit, uh, I'm oversimplifying to some degree. Um, but when we start to feel like our social identity is salient, when we feel like you know the in groups and out groups, we we can start to create these these kind of uh, these fault lines within a team. Yeah, the, everybody's seen this. Hey, these eight people, these are the bosses. These two are the bosses' favorite. The rest of the eight of us are, you know, okay. We're in the team, and those two are like the kind of the outcast. And they talk about this in the literature about in group outgroup dynamics. And lots of times, identity at both at the surface level and deep level can play into those in-group, out-group dynamics, which if you're a manager of a team, and we'll talk about this in implication, that means you're not firing all cylinders if there's in-group, out-group dynamics that are going on. Mm -hmm. But we've all seen bosses, managers, CEOs that cannot tolerate conflict. And so they tend to hire people more like them or fire the people if it just gets assigned to them. They'll fire the people that aren't because they can't handle conflict. But guys, we talk about conflict as if it's bad. Conflict's only bad if you handle it badly. Right. You know, right. sometimes, all, like, yeah. Yeah. And there's also different types of conflict. And we'll get into that in a, a moment. But l l let's, uh, you know, think about this from 
perspective of how conflict emerges in diverse teams, right? So we we have different contexts, different types of things that can occur that make our social identity, our uniqueness, or our level of belonging um, more or less salient in a group. And when that happens, it influences how we start to look at things. It influences how we look at the goals of the team, right? Are those really my goals or are those goals of the other people? Uh, you know, how are... Th- how does how do things happen, right? And how do we attribute causes within the team? Um, who has power and control? Who does not? And what kinds of norms do we have, right? So you start to have this appraisal of the issues. And then because you have different ways in which you're viewing those types of items, you can start to experience some level of conflict, right? Because conflict at its root oftentimes is a difference of perspective, um, you know, sometimes differences of belief and importance of goals and those types of items. So that's how, when you have a diverse team, it can lead to increased levels of conflict. Yeah, and especially if you're outside the group norm. Now, everybody's put on a bit of a face. We talk about managing appearances in one of our episodes prior. And then, you know, you go into work and you're like, okay, this is my business type behavioral norms, how I act. But when you're in a group, where so many norms are just taken for granted. Here's here's a horrible example. When I moved to Alabama, they were like, hey, man, are you Alabama or Auburn? And I was like, right. um, I don't know, because I grew up playing soccer. I didn't know anything about college football. The look <laughs> on my face was probably like, oh, my gosh, we got to help. No, no, man, is it Alabama or Auburn? Well, well neither. Well, you got to pick, because when you live in Alabama, You have to root for either Alabama or Auburn come Iron Bowl day. But that is just the in-group norm. I was completely out, and the kind of stunned, weird looks that I got in the meantime were just really odd, right? Yeah, and so we can can look at that specific example through the lens of social identity. So perhaps, given your description— you know, people have as part of their social identity being an Auburn fan or being a, a Crimson Tide fan, right? And so that's University of Alabama, by the way, um, for our listeners who are not aware. Um, so, <laughs> and excuse you know, my butchering of the Southern accent there. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, that becomes kind of another level of group membership. Now, you in that situation didn't have identity with either group. And so you're kind of like, well, you know, I don't, I, I didn't even know this was a thing. And I kind of feel like an outsider here. And so I couldn't start, even fake it. I couldn't yeah. even fake it. <laughs> right, right. You know, make up some potential players of the on the team. Yeah, I did really well last time. That, uh, that Bill and John guy really did great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you can't, it, it's hard to do. So that's an example of how this can occur because then you start kind of seeing things differently. It could lead to conflict, could lead to you just feeling left out. It could lead to you perhaps, um, you know, not being invited to certain things. It could lead to you um, not being, you know, able to really produce, you know, at, at full capacity um, because you're, you're not really part of the group. So these are some things you got to be careful about and, um, and certainly can be a way in which having a highly diverse team can lead to more conflict. Now, you know, we said at the beginning that, yes, part of this, you know, issue is that you have uh, potentially more conflict in a diverse team. However, the paradox is that having a diverse team is really good for a lot of reasons. 
because you can have more creativity, more innovation, better decision-making quality. And those are reasons why you want to figure out how to deal with this type of conflict in order to, to maximize the, the power of your diverse team. Yeah. And so in the army, we do this all the time. We set up a new unit. Everybody just comes together from all over the place. Right. They just got a sign. And, you know, there's this group formation model that a lot of people talk about, you know, forming, norming, storming, because very quickly, this is how important having these like norms and things you can rely on because they help you feel safe is immediately everybody's trying to sort out, well, how do we do business around here? Mm -hmm. And what does it look like to be part of this unit, this team, this group? Okay, somebody made fun of my red shirt. I'll never wear that red shirt again. Okay, we're a blue shirt kind of group here, you know, or whatever that is. All those things start to get hashed out quickly because most people, and this is totally normal, right? Most people have a hard time with that ambiguity. Now, it's different when you already have an established team and maybe you bring on somebody, right, mm -hmm. that has any... And these identity things can be more than the race and gender. I mean, this is any kind of diversity. Maybe you bring on, I remember earlier when we started to do offshore development, you know, I remember the first time I worked with a software developer with India, from mm -hmm. India. And that, you know, that was ubiquitous at this point. You know, there's tons of software developers all over the world. Now I've worked with them in Poland, everywhere. But the first time it was very different. Right. And I guarantee I can't even imagine what it was like for that lone software developer from India on our team. Yeah. Well, and I think that, that brings up another point here, which is I think it's healthy and useful as a leader to um, try to have some perspective and perhaps have a little bit of empathy for someone who is of a, an underrepresented group. And, you know, I think this kind of leads us into talking a little bit more about how we can think about and manage conflict within diverse teams. Um, so, you know, we've talked about how there's this uh, body of research that uh, does support this idea that, you know, in diverse teams, we do tend to have more conflict, uh, but it is very important. And um, another thing that I think is is important to note here is that, yeah, having a diverse team, you're probably going to have better decision-making quality. You're probably going to have more innovation and uh, creativity. But there's also another reason why you might want to have a diverse team and have an environment in which everyone feels like they can simultaneously be unique and belong. And that, I mean, that's like the, that's like the, you know, the scholarly definition of inclusion. Right. And, um, you know, say that just, again, the scholarly definition of inclusion is it, it, it. So it's the simultaneous, um, uh, existence, I suppose, of, uh, uniqueness and belonging. Right. So you can have this type of a uh, unique self while still feeling like you're part of the group, right? Um, and uh, you know, some some places that's that's a lot easier than that said than done, right? So some places are good at that, some places aren't. Um, but the the key here is that you know, I think there's an argument to be made that this is just the right thing to do in general because it's going to be not not just because it's going to be healthy for your organization, but because it helps people flourish at work. Yeah, you know, being unique at work is important, but also some of those things that exceed our uniqueness are the values and where the organization's trying to get to. Right. Now, one of the things from the article in Group Dynamics is the importance of developing trust early on. So if mm. you can do that, if you, you have, you're setting up that new team, building that trust and not letting in-group, out-group dynamics like come into place, 
being solid about goals, that's going to help you in the long term. But a lot of you guys out there are building airplanes in the sky. You know, you're already <laughs> flying and you've got to fix things. And sometimes in an environment where trust has been shattered. Absolutely. That, that certainly can occur. So if you can, you know, we you just cited some research from uh, in the journal Group Dynamics. We'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. You know, they did a, a study, a longitudinal study. So over time, looking at 49 different teams, and it did show that, uh, you know, having a higher level of trust early on in team interactions um, is a good thing, right? And it's good because it leads to lower conflict down the road. But let's talk about conflict. Uh, there are a handful of different types of conflict, and um, some are worse than others. So the first one is what we call task conflict. And you know this can be kind of neutral or, or even good. And this is about you know, having a different perspective on what needs to get done or how to do something or, or what should even happen with a team or an organization, what direction we're heading those types of things. And that can actually be pretty good, don't you think? Yeah. Matter of fact, that's the best kind of conflict to have. If there's no task conflict, that means you're not firing on all cylinders. Congratulations. No. The zombie apocalypse is real and you've got the team of zombies. They're working for you, right? So, <laughs> or maybe you're one of those zombies. And, you know, this is like perceived organizational support, um, a feedback environment. If you have those kinds of things, you're going to have a lot of task conflict because, hey, I think I got a better way of doing it. No way. Yes way. Look, look. All right. We'll pilot it. And, you know, those kinds of things are good and how an organization evolves. But the second type of conflict is not yeah. so good. And this is relationship conflict. What's relationship conflict, Ben? So relationship conflict is when you are not just attacking someone's ideas. You're attacking more them as a person, right? It's more of a character attack. It's more of, uh, you know, I, uh, personality clashes and uh, where you start to perhaps view other people as having less worth or um, those types of, of person-centered uh, conflicts. Those are really destructive, and that's what you want to avoid. Now, what's, what's problematic is that sometimes, and actually fairly frequently, you can have task conflict in, um, you know, just a dyad between two people or in a group, a team. Um, that can, if, if gone unmitigated, can turn into relationship conflict. Or if you have bad norms about how you handle conflict, it can easily turn into uh, the bad type of conflict. You know, I think, I think you and I have some good task conflict sometimes, right? So it's funny, um, you know, like we were working on putting together just like some sort of presentation the other day. And, you know, you and I feel very comfortable just saying, eh, I don't know about that, right? When we're, when we're doing stuff. And, uh, and it, but, it, but it makes for a better result when we both, because we both have, I think, a high level of psychological safety when we're working with each other. It's like, eh, I don't know. That's okay. It, there, there's none of this posturing like, oh, that's pretty good. And, you know, there's none of this dancing around type stuff. At the same time, we both realize that we have each other's best interests in mind as well as the interests of the project. And so we don't devolve into the relationship conflict, I don't think. Yeah, I remember the first time I did it. You're like, so what do you think? And I'm like, eh, C minus. And I could see you. You were like visibly like, what did you just say? <laughs> and I'm like, what? It's a good start, but I think we could do a lot better. And now that's kind of become a norm. Like, and sometimes, yeah. and and it's not that it doesn't smart sometimes when it's said, you know, like, all right, Ben, here's my best effort. Man, Ben's gonna love this. And you're like, oh, that's a D. And and then you start, I start seeing your perspective. I know. And you're like, oh, my my best effort was a D shoot <laughs> you know and but 
you know, that I start seeing your perspective. And I think we've both accelerated. And you tell me if you agree with this. We've both accelerated our growth as a team over the years we've been working together because of that task level conflict and frankness by which we talk to each other. Yeah, I mean, because you'll you'll see it in other teams and organizations where there isn't that level of task conflict, where people just kind of, you know, everybody kind of knows that you are doing stuff that's substandard or just, but it's just kind of like, eh, I don't care enough. I don't want to rub people the wrong way. And and people just kind of muddle along that way. It's It's really not good. But the key here is trust. And so in a diverse team, you have to work extra hard to have a develop, you know, the development of trust early on. Now, of course, as a leader, you can can certainly model this um, by showing the, uh, you know, that you are that you care about people, talking about it, showing it, um, and you know, because a big piece about trust is benevolence. You know, that that you actually care about uh, my well being, that you have my best interest in mind, and therefore I'm going to release some of my control and put it in your hands to some degree, right? Right. And, you know, we haven't really talked about and it's outside the scope of this episode, really. I mean, we could do six episodes on diversity and teams managing Absolutely. that, dealing with conflict like international norms or different cultural norms from one organization to another. Like a McKinsey guy is going to be different than a Deloitte guy because those firms have different culture, even more so when you say maybe somebody from Poland with on a team with somebody from Sweden or something. Um, these kinds of things, some of the, you're going to have to do some extra steps to build trust. Now, hopping into the diversity piece, same thing. If you're an organization that wants to do better in the realm of what we're calling diversity and inclusion or whatever the acronym of the month is at this point, because it's an evolving area of study, if you've blown it with people of color in your org, you're going to have to seek out some special ways to build trust that you may not have done in the past. If if you're coming out of like a bro culture and are hiring your first female employees because you realize the value of diversity, right? You're going to, you know, probably start with your wives, but also, <laughs> you know, or your partner or whatever it is. You need to go find somebody that's going to help you build trust that's unique to that community. And I want to say, I'm just going on a little rant here, Ben. Sorry. I want to <laughs> say, like, this is not above and beyond what you would have to do with somebody you didn't understand anyway. Let's say you're bringing, and I saw this, organizations that never had technology in their org. They were all paper-based. Well, they had to learn a new land of IT and how IT thinks about things. That's the same thing you should do. Every person is an individual. So when you're building psychological safety and trust, you need to get to know that individual person. And when it comes to groups of people that have social identities, there's diversity within there. So you're going to need to do, and it's outside the scope of this episode, but I want to exhort you to go find those resources if you if you're in a place it's not a new team and you need to shore up where there's loss of trust there are paths and people out there who can help you do that and and you need to seek them out yeah that's well said you know you you also shouldn't go through you know any kind of leadership situation thinking that conflict is is 
always bad, right? Or, the, or if you have some conflict, that all is lost. Conflict still can happen, certainly within teams, even if you have a high level of trust. It's, you, know, you can have that, that task conflict, right? The key is to try to not have it devolve into relationship conflict. And sometimes conflict is even necessary to improve how people are thinking and to get people on the same page. But I'd like to turn our attention now to kind of bringing it back to some implications for people and for leaders and organizations. And again, the focus here is on, okay, how do I deal with the uh, the problem, the phenomenon of increased conflict or an increased probability of conflict within a highly diverse team? It's like, hey, I get it. Like having a diverse team is good for a bunch of business reasons and moral reasons. I want to do that. I Maybe I have it now. What can I do to really try to ensure that we're having good good types of conflict, that we're handling conflict productively? And so I think, uh, you know, we can start maybe at the individual level. So, you know, how can you be a, a good team member? What are some things that maybe can help you within a diverse team setting uh, be more uh, productive as well as uh, reduce the po- probability of some of the bad conflict? Well, you know, one of the things that we know from this model that we've been talking about is that if your social identity is really salient, lots of times people use that to enhance their self-esteem. Mm. Or they'll go try to be on a team that people like them. So that can reduce the their uncertainties, right? Um, and you know, maybe they don't want to be when you're when everything else, your job performance and all that kind of stuff is on the line, the you want to focus just on that minimus, that small piece, rather than also say like, well, shoot, I'm working on getting my job done and doing a good job there. Now I also have to pay attention to all these identity pieces. So people might go try to find an org that looks like themselves, but there might be really cool orgs that everybody doesn't look like you and you would be that banging, awesome, super duper piece of diversity on that team. So if you're in that place as either the in-group or the out-group, maybe the larger majority or the minority, don't rest your self-esteem on your identity. Mm. You're you're a human on this planet. You put on, what do they say? You put your pants on one leg at a time and then go make hit records, just like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it particularly perhaps has to do with your social identity. So let's say you took all of the different groups in which you uh, you know identify, right? And you know, be it your your uh, area of religion, your political identity, what sports team you like, different things about you demographically, and those are all your pieces. Um, you know, if you are too concerned or too, I, I suppose, married to the idea that you always have to fit in, then you may exclude yourself from great opportunities. And when you're in a diverse setting, you may be more prone to kind of uh, see uh, differences that that leads to conflict. You know, you may start to say, "Oh, well, you know, these goals are not mine. You're just doing that because I'm so and so." I think be careful with your social identity, right? It's great to feel like you belong. It's great to find those areas of nexus with other people, um, but I think sometimes you could take it too far. And if that's the only thing that's salient to you, then you may have some uh, some problems. Right. So you self validate, like, "Hey, I'm okay." Yeah. You know, be the person you're proud to be. Yeah. You know? So like a silly example, like let's say you're, you know, so the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers are big rivals, you know? So in the National Football League, that's American style football, right? For that was for you, Chris. Um so, you know, <laughs> as if let's say you're a Cleveland Browns fan, 
you know, if you say I'm going, going only going to associate with people who are also Cleveland Brown fans, you're going to miss out on some great opportunities. Or if when you're among a bunch of Steelers fans, if you are only looking for ways in which you are different from them, that's problematic and vice versa. Right. Or here's a conversation I had with somebody in my neighborhood. Um, it was a mom was talking about, you know, some, I guess, difference of opinion about parenting and just say, well, you know, I just keep my ideas to myself. And so and that that's OK, too. But I remember asking her, I said, hey. I, would you decide differently? Like, look at you are who you are based on all your decisions. Did you make a bunch of really bad decisions? And if her answer was yes, I'm like, great, time to start making good decisions. Mm-hmm. But she's a really incredible person, right? And she's like, no, I am. And I'm like, well, then stand on your own two feet and self-validate that you're okay with those decisions. And that's one way an individual can be, you know, fly their uniqueness in an organization that adds strength. They're self-validated. If you're okay with the decisions, that's very different, though, and we see this often, Ben and I do, the idea of when somebody's so blinded, the whole world's out to get me. You know, sometimes we do executive coaching. Um, some of these execs, VPs even and stuff, will kind of come off the rails because they don't have that sure-footedness. You can reduce the volatility in your individual life if you're first be okay with yourself. If you're not okay with yourself, ask why. Make those better decisions so you can get to a place where you're okay with yourself. And then stand on your own two feet. And then, whether you're a Steelers fan or a Browns fan, (laughs) will be something cool about you, but probably not the most interesting thing. (laughs) That's right. And, you know, I think it's also important to realize that everyone has different pieces of themselves that make them unique. And everyone's trying to figure out how to make their way in the world and and in a team. And everybody wants to feel uh, like they belong. And so I think just giving people some grace with, with each other and uh, trying to, um, you know, don't be too quick to, to exclude others. You know, it's, it's, it's part of our natural tendency um, to start to do that kind of stuff, but you really have to be careful to, to ensure that you're not. Yeah, absolutely. So and it's just not simple. Everybody's complex, even your worst enemy. And we've seen this in the political realm, right? I, and I'll just throw, right? Because we always go there. All Republicans love Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. What, like, what are you going to tell Russ Dothot, you know, or mm-hmm. David Brooks? You know, um, all liberals want communism. And I, I'm just picking some of the agree. And this, these just aren't fair, aren't fair. All Catholics have a certain perspective. I know Joe Biden is is taking some stuff for that right now. Um, All atheists are amoral or I mean, that's just the reason why we can't do these blanket statements is they just disrespect the complexity and the deep diversity that exists within every single one of the ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right, Ben, all the groups that you're involved with. Do you agree with absolutely everything in that group? Can you name one? <laughs> no, no, that's not really how it works, right? So, um, and I also think it's it's important to realize that there is there is more to a person than any one of their group identities, right? So, you know, just because someone is a certain race or just because they are a certain political affiliation doesn't mean X, Y, and Z about them, right? Necessarily, 
uh, you know, so don't make those assumptions. We are very quick to stereotype as people. And I think we do. I think there's a lot of that in society, it's society today. And that's problematic. It, it creates problems with how we interact and how we try to get things done in teams. Another thing to remember is that, and this is kind of related to that point, is that there is always more, um, almost always, there is, there's more variation within the group than there is between the groups anyway. You know, so if you want to treat all people of a certain race or gender or political affiliation as this monolith, that they're all this one thing, first of all, it's just not true, right? There's a lot of variation within that group about how they view the world, how they act, what they think is important. And so recognizing that, um, I think, can can be a healthy way for us to work together in diverse teams. Yeah, another thing I want to highlight on the individual level, and I love the individual level because you don't have to worry about what other people do. You can just focus on what what you do. And we have another episode. I don't know if it's released yet. We did an episode on forgiveness. And one of the things that we struggle with as a society and as individuals is this idea of social redemption. So even when you deal with somebody that has stinking thinking on your diverse team, right? and you're frustrated, I, I call it leaving the light on. Leave the light on for other people. Allow people to off-ramp off of bad ideas and make sure that you're not calcifying and don't need to take one of those off-ramps of some of your own bad ideas when you're on a diverse team or on any team for that matter. Right. So let's talk now about leaders. So how might leaders... Uh, deal with conflict well in a diverse team. And I think one of the things that you've got to do is, you know, be aware that there are these power dynamics and these structures and, um, you know, really try to be consistent and be fair in how you treat people. Don't create those in groups and out groups. Don't assume certain things about different groups. You know, if you have a group that's maybe 50% of one gender and 50% of the other, don't assume that all of them, you know, are going to be thinking as, uh, you know, a, a single group, right? Don't create the fault lines that might be there. Uh, so that's the first thing I would recommend. Yeah, the, this disrupting power structures, like this is pro-leadership stuff. This is where you're specifically looking for things that are going to keep in-group and out-group dynamics, keep more relational rather than task-based conflict at the front and center. And the, probably the easiest way to kind of conceptualize this kind of thing and look at it is think of a teacher teaching a bunch of kids. Sometimes there's some bullying that goes on. Good teachers interdict or set up class activities and stuff in a way to minimize that bullying. Uh, we, Ben, we both have children. I've had my kids deal with a little bit of bullying here and there, nothing beyond the normal stuff um, per se, but, and it breaks your heart as a parent. And as a leader, it should break your heart. If people on your team aren't, you know, included, aren't able to be their unique self within a team-based goals and those kinds of things. So you're really just trying to think of being that teacher. How do you curate that environment and make sure there aren't, policies that exclude people. You know, if you have like a person, you know, accessibility issues, if you have somebody in a wheelchair and they're struggling just to get to their seat or cubicle like that, you got to try to figure out how to disrupt those kinds of things. So that person can start the day fresh 
in as much as everybody else can. Right. You know, you also want to be careful to not set things up in your teams, in your groups to, uh, you know, that are increasing the level of intergroup competition, right? The competition within the group. Uh, it's great for a team perhaps to compete externally, to have an external threat, so to speak, or something that they're going after together. But if you're having people compete against each other within the team, well, you know, you may have some individual goals that get met, but you will probably sacrifice the overall quality of the team's performance. So um, be careful about that, especially within a diverse team, because you don't need to just throw on more conflict when it's already uh, more of a probability. Yeah, that's I mean, you got it. And that and if you haven't read about in group out groups, go read it. You need to understand that literature and those dynamics. So because the people that create that is the leader themselves. Great right. leaders will have less in group out group dynamic than poor leaders. Yeah. So don't you as a leader, you want to be careful and not not show favoritism, not create kind of, oh, you are these types of people and you're these types of people. That, that's not helpful, right? So let's turn our attention now to what organizations might do to deal with uh, the increased probability of uh, conflict within diverse teams. And I think part of this is, you know, having a good culture and having norms for behavior that align with your strategy and values. You know, what do we care about around here? Uh, do we care about the diversity of ideas? Do we care about dealing with conflict in a way that we're, uh, you know, vigorously debating, uh, you know, how we're going to get things done or what the right thing to do is, but we don't take it to the level of character attacks, right? We, we maintain the sincere belief that everyone in this organization should be treated with dignity and respect, not only in terms of what we say to them, but in terms of how we approach them and how we say things. Uh, that could be a step in the right direction. Right. And and those norms of behavior, they can be dress and a whole wide variety. Now, a lot of the business world's pretty Western centric. I mean, you go deal with a businessman in Japan, he's probably wearing a suit. But as we bring more diversity into our organizations, you might need to rethink the kind of hair dress code that are allowed. You know, there's been a lot of organizations that have kind of tripped over their own feet by not allowing traditional, even like well-groomed and respectful colors, um, respectful hairstyles for people of color and other diverse uh, organizations. Same thing mm -hmm. maybe with traditional garb. Um, you know, it, like in the Middle East, Ben, when we were in Afghanistan, there's just different norms and negotiate those norms of behavior with an empathy to where everyone's at. Um, a discussion I had with somebody was on a vendor you know, oh, if I hire a vendor, uh, IT vendor. Oh, well, I'll just pick the one that has the most Western norms and go with that. Now, that's easier in the near term, but you might be missing out on a really awesome strategic partner just because you're not allowing that diversity to kind of exist. Yeah. Well, and this also reminds me of we've talked about this on the podcast before, but how people or organizations can run afoul of trying to even create diversity in their organization by emphasizing too much this idea of culture fit, right? If you are really only trying to hire for culture fit and making sure they fit with your existing culture, well, you're going to end up with a, a lot of people who are probably fairly similar to the people who are already there. Uh, so you, you certainly want to hire for people who fit with the job. And then I think the fit piece for the culture is like, hey, do they have the same values as we do in terms of, you know, how they how, how they view, you know, appropriate behavior in the workplace or where where this organization is headed? 
that's that's fine. But you don't want everybody to to have to pass some litmus test of of being exactly the same. Yeah. And matter of fact, even a little bit of diversity of values, depending on where they are, might stretch you in positive ways. Right. Right. It depends on the nature of the value. So I'm thinking about things like if one of your values is you know, honesty and integrity. You probably don't want a whole lot of diversity there, right? You, you probably <laughs> probably want that to be fairly consistent. But certainly in terms of kind of worldviews and so, stuff like that, that could be, um, you know, a, a, an added um, addition of, uh, of diversity to your group. Yeah. So another place is like promotion and awards. So, and this all comes under how you, and we're talking about the organizational level stuff, how you incentivize certain behaviors, right? So, Make sure that the awards are aligned with where you're trying to go as an organization. Now, those organizational goals and where you're trying to go should be vetted across the, you know, if it can survive the diversity check, they're probably good organizational goals. If these are organizational goals that only win for wealthy white men over 50, well, I don't know what, you're probably missing a lot of opportunity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think the last piece here is, you know, thinking about how creativity, how vigorous debate, how um, having some healthy conflict and using all of that to accomplish your goals um, really can be a, a, a part of your cultural fabric in your organization and that you're not just trying to get everybody to act and look exactly the same. Um, you know, even within the military, where we do kind of force people to to look and act a lot the same, uh, yeah, we wear we similar things and we have to, you know, be physically fit, all that kind of stuff. Um, even there, uh, the military has a distinct need and has long recognized the need for creativity and innovation. And, you know, you and I saw that when we were deployed in Afghanistan, trying to adapt, trying to do things differently to, to uh, you know, Make sure that we're updating how we do things in order to stay safe and everything, um, but also in terms of just complex problem solving. And you you can still encourage that even if you're all wearing the same type of garb. Yeah, absolutely. And Ben, when you signed up for the military, did they did they say, hmm, I, was culture fit a part of your interview questions? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, one could perhaps argue that, you know, they want people who want to serve their country and things like that. But, um, you know, it more it's more about, you know, can do you want to do the job and can you do the job? Uh, so, you know, those types of items. Then then we'll put you in the job and then we'll form in Norman Storman, develop yeah. our own cultures, like all that kind of stuff, all kinds. And this is what I want to get through to a bunch of leaders. When I took my first platoon, my infantry platoon, it had about, I don't know, 40 people in it. And, you know, hey, here's your first mission, Everett. And, you're, oh, that's a great mission and everything, sir. But did you see the team I got? I don't get to say that. My team gets assigned to me. And some of those guys come straight out the basic training pipeline. Some of them as well. I got my girlfriend pregnant and had no job opportunities. So here I am. Mm-hmm. somewhere well the the judge said go to war or go to jail jail sounded pretty bad so here i am and we had a whole <laughs> diversity of people and we still had to accomplish the mission and and the army defines leadership as in um influencing the organization while accomplishing the mission right providing i'll do it right now it it, providing purpose, direction, and motivation while influencing the organization and accomplishing the mission. And the thing is, you can do that with diverse teams. 
If you look at your diverse teams and say, hey, I don't, I'm going to dump all these stinking thinking about what people need to look like on my team and instead try to run with what I got and those kinds of elements, you'll be surprised at how far you go and how much more expansive your idea of leadership and team composition can be that if you're trying to get that VP spot against 40 other directors, that might just put you over the edge. Well, there you have it, folks. Some good stuff. Today on the Indigo podcast, we've talked about diversity, conflict, and team performance. And we've talked about those relationships among those different pieces and how we can think about and manage conflict within diverse teams, along with some implications for individuals, leaders, and organizations. 